Hello there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. You're about to listen to another exciting lesson in the series that Brother Max Dawson, an elder and evangelist in the church in Beaumont, Texas, presented to us on the Holy Spirit. This is the fifth lesson in the series, asking the question, how does the Holy Spirit dwell in Christians? Like so many topics regarding the Holy Spirit, there are numerous things that are taught today, some very confusing things presented. What does the Bible say? I'm sure you'll enjoy this lesson and learn a great deal as you open your Bibles to answer the question, how does the Holy Spirit dwell in the Christian? One of the great blessings of life that we're able to come together as free and able persons to study from the Bible, to praise our God, learn things that God wants us to know. That's why God gave us the Bible. We talked in our, one of our Sunday lessons about how that God has revealed His mind, will, and counsel unto mankind, and He's revealed it in a written form the book we call the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. We're studying from the Bible this week, studying about the Holy Spirit and learning things. Here's my control. Learning things that will help us to understand the will of the Holy Spirit. And we're appealing to the Holy Spirit's own guidebook to learn what He wants us to know. Now, we studied last evening and in the lesson prior even to that, how that there are no more miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit today. Those gifts were given for a definite time and definite purpose. When God fulfilled His purpose and time in those gifts, then those gifts were taken out of the way according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But the fact that we no longer have those gifts today has led some people to erroneously conclude that Christians have no relationship with the Holy Spirit. And indeed, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrong view. I'm looking at the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. This passage is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. Romans 8, verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I understand then from this passage that if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us, then we don't even belong to God. Well, let's begin tonight by talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and asking the question, what is the real issue? And from this verse and others that we're going to see, we're going to see, first of all, what the issue is not. It is not a question of if. It's not a question of if the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that God the Father and the Son also dwell in Christians. Let's look at a few verses. I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the final verses of that chapter, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But here the verse says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Well, could it be clearer then? Our bodies indeed are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us. But not only that, look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17. There it speaks of Christ. And Ephesians 3:17 is worded like this. Listen carefully. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. It says Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. And there are numerous other verses that speak in the same way regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm turning to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 16 through 18. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. This time we're looking at the final three verses of the chapter, and we're going to see that God the Father dwells in Christians. Here's what it says now in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Notice God says, I will be a father to you. So, what have we seen? The Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. Christ dwells in Christians and God the Father also dwells in Christians. All these passages and many, many more make it clear that deity dwells in the believer in some way. So, what is the real issue about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? It's not a question of if, but rather, ladies and gentlemen, it is a question of how. Does the Holy Spirit enter into the body of a believer and literally inhabit the body, literally inside the body of a Christian? And we would ask the same thing about Jesus and the Father. Is Jesus Christ literally, personally, inside of my body? And is God the Father literally indwelling this body? Or is the word dwell used in some other sense? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in us through some means, or does He dwell in us directly? Those are questions that we're going to try to answer tonight. And we would say this, that if the Holy Spirit literally inhabits believers, what does He do as a result of this bodily indwelling that is not accomplished by means of his revealed word. We're going to try to explore those concepts this evening. But as we do that, I want to begin by making a distinction, a distinction between the person and presence of deity. Now, you may look at that and say, well, that sounds like a complicated concept. It's really not. The Holy Spirit, we established in our lesson Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, just like God the Father is a divine person. The Bible teaches that God the Father is seated on His throne in heaven, and I think sometimes in our minds, maybe when we're praying or when we're studying the Bible, we sort of get a picture in our mind of, of maybe what heaven looks like and God the Father seated on His throne. And just like Jesus, the Son is a divine person, and he's pictured in the Bible as being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Numerous scriptures that demonstrate that. Even so, the Holy Spirit is a divine person and is before the Father's throne in heaven. All three, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, all three are in heaven. But listen carefully. I'm going to say that the presence of the Holy Spirit, as well as the Father and Son, may be where his person is not. The presence of the Holy Spirit may be where His person is not. Someone says, that sure sounds complicated. Well, when we talk about the person, we're talking about the actual entity Himself. When we speak of, of Jesus, where is Jesus? My mother and my grandmother taught me when I was a little boy, even before I, before I could even remember these things, to say, up in the sky meaning that he was in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God, isn't he? And where is the Father? He is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And so is the Holy Spirit. And yet, as we come together tonight, we believe that the presence of Jesus is in our midst. We believe that the presence, the presence of God the Father is with us. We believe the Holy Spirit is present with us. And yet, what did we say? That the presence of the Holy Spirit may be where his person is not. His person is not here. Just like Jesus is not personally here. He's not personally here, but His presence is here to be sure. 
numerous passages that teach that. Even as we sing, Hebrews chapter 2 teaches that the Lord is among His people as they gather to sing. When we have the Lord's Supper on, on Sunday, Jesus is among us as we do that. He is, he is present while His person is still in heaven. And that's significant that we understand that because that's going to help us to understand something about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the proposition of this lesson tonight that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the persons, the three persons of the Godhead, are in heaven and they remain in heaven and yet the presence of all three are with the believers. And that means that the Father is with you, the Son is with you, and the Holy Spirit is with you, even though the persons themselves remain in heaven. Now, to set about to do that, let's talk about how the word dwell is used in the Bible. The word dwell does not necessitate a literal, a literal indwelling of the person. By that, I mean that the Holy Spirit, when the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, that doesn't mean he is literally inside my body. The, the Bible use of the word dwell does not necessitate that. When I speak of the fact that Christ is with me, and how many passages... How many passages talk about Christ being with us? Uh, one of my favorite is certainly Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, said Paul. Christ lives in me. And yet the same Paul spoke of Christ being at the right hand of God in heaven. He said, Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, when we understand that Paul spoke that way, we don't believe that Christ was literally inside of Paul's body. That's not the point at all. The word dwell is used in another way. And we're going to suggest tonight that the word dwell is often used of control or influence. And as a beginning point to demonstrate that Bible truth, I'm going to go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle speaks of himself before he became a Christian. I'm looking at Romans chapter 7, beginning at about verse 17. And he talks about the things that he did that were in opposition to God before he became a Christian. And he talked about how he was a slave to sin, how he was held captive by sin. Sin was his master. Sin controlled his life, he said. Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Do we believe that there was something called sin that had climbed inside of his body? No. What we mean is he was under the control of sin. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 18. For I know that, it, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And there Paul is describing himself as a captive to, to sin. He was a slave to sin. He talked about how that, uh, that sin not only dwelt in him, but look at verse 23 and 24. He says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, we know who the deliverer is. It is Jesus Christ. But he speaks of himself here, I understand in this context, before he became a Christian, he describes himself in this fashion. And he said, sin dwells in me. What do we mean by that? It meant that he was under the influence of sin. He was under the control and domination of sin. There was someone else, something else, that was governing his life as a principle for his activities. 
John spoke the same way. I'm looking at the book of 2 John, verse 2. The little tiny book of 2 John only has 13 verses, but the second verse, let me read verses 1 and 2. John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all, all, all those who love the truth, who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. If you've got the King James Version, it speaks of the truth which dwells in us. What does he mean when he says the truth dwells in us? Does that mean we have memorized Scripture? Does that mean that if we know a lot of verses, the truth dwells in us? It doesn't mean that at all. Several years ago, back around 1982 or 83, I was preaching a, a meeting in Austin, Texas, where the American Atheist Center was at that time. Madeline Murray O'Hare, who was the world-renowned atheist. Of course, she is now a believer. She now believes in God. I got to meet Madeline O'Hare. And she was a rather pleasant lady, which was very different than I'd ever seen her on television. But the interesting thing is, Ms. O'Hare knows many verses. She's able to quote more scriptures than many of you. But did the, did the truth dwell in her? Did the Word of Christ dwell in her richly in all wisdom? I don't think so, because it did not control her. She memorized scripture only to fight against scripture and to fight against those who were believers. No, the truth did not dwell in her. But John here is thankful for those in whom the truth does dwell. And what does he mean? He says, you're under the influence of truth. It is truth that controls and dominates your life. You see, sin can control. Truth can control. Look with me to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. And by the way, if you're following along in the workbook, we're on page 17. I should have mentioned that. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. And here's a place where you can fill in an answer if you'd like to. Here Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamos and he says, I know your works and where you dwell. What does he mean by dwell there? He's talking about now where they live. That's obviously the case. They dwelt in that place called Pergamos. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now what does he mean? Does he mean Satan has got his residence there in the city of Pergamos? That Satan's got a house or a, or a throne there in that place? That he lives there? No, that's not the idea. The idea is that that city was under the influence and control of Satan. That there were wicked people in that city. And that Satan had such influence there that it could be said that Satan dwells in that place. Can you see the idea then how that dwell can be used of control or influence? And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to suggest tonight that in the sense of control and influence, both the Father and the Son dwell in us. Let me make my point on that. Both the Father and Son dwell in us. And let me show you some verses that say that. Can I do that? Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We saw it a moment ago. We'll see it again. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse number 16. Listen to what it says here as it speaks of the people of God. In verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of, of the living God, as God has said. Now let's pause there for a moment. You see, what was happening among some at Corinth, some were going off and engaging in these idolatrous feasts, and they were being, as he says here, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Back in verse 14, they were having religious fellowship with some of these who were practicing idolatry. And he says, now you can't do that. 
He says in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And since you're the temple of God, what is that going to mean? That's going to mean that God dwells in you. God controls you, and if God's going to control you, you better not be in fellowship with these who are practicing idolatry. You are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their people, and they, I will be their God, they shall be my people. When God says, I will dwell in them, He's talking about His control over their lives and how that they could not live a life that was inconsistent with His control. Look at 2 John, verse 9. The little book of 2 John, another time. 2 John, the ninth verse. Whoever transgresses and does not abide, the word abide is essentially the same thing as dwell. Whoever does not dwell in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The idea of dwelling or abiding is the idea of relationship, and in this case, the relationship is one controlling another. It's the idea of, of the Father and the Son controlling us. The Father dwells in us. We have a relationship. Notice what it says. It says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. I want you to remember that word has or have because we're going to come back to that word a little bit later on. Not only does the Father dwell in us, not only do we have the Father but we have Christ the Son. In fact, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, 17. What does it say? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, etc., etc. Now, I want to ask you a question. We've just seen verses that speak of how we have the Father, how we have the Son, how that the Father and Son are in us, that the Father dwells in us, that the Son dwells in us. And I want to ask you a question. Do any of these references imply that either the Father or the Son are personally inside our bodies? We understand these passages to talk about our relationship with deity. Not that the persons of deity are literally inside of us. That's why I was making the point a little while ago, ladies and gentlemen, that the presence of, of the Holy Spirit may be where His person is not. His person is in heaven, but His presence is with us, and the presence of the Father and the presence of the Son are with us, even though the person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the persons are in heaven. We, we may say of the Son, in fact, you can look at these two little boys up here, Ethan and Ryan Crozier, and I want to ask you, what do you see in those boys? What do you see in those boys? You see Edwin, that's right. You see Edwin in them. Edwin dwells in those boys. And they get out of line. He's got a little thing he calls it thumping. He takes care of them. He controls and influences them. And he, uh, he governs their lives. But look at how much those boys are like Edwin. They're like him in so many ways. I enjoy just being with the two of them because I've known Edwin for about ten years. I enjoy being with those little boys. They're just like two little Edwins. Good looking. Short hair. <laughs> now, we don't mean that Edwin is literally inside of those boys, but we mean that the influence of, of that dad is found in the life of those two little lads. That's what we mean, isn't it? We see, we can see their father in them. Well, the premise of this lesson is this, that the Holy Spirit influences and controls us. And that's evident in our lives. 
You see, both the Father and Son dwell in us, just like the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Through means of control and influence, the Spirit is said to dwell in us. The means of control and influence is the word given by the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to our next major point, and that is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us by means of His revealed Word. The, the Bible, listen ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is not the Holy Spirit, but it is the agency or the means or the medium through which He operates. Let me illustrate. A man says he chopped down a tree. In fact, I saw Kenny Wells cut down several trees when he was in Beaumont uh, six or seven months ago. We say Kenny cut down the trees. Well, what do we mean? Did he use his bare hands? Did he, what did he do? Well, did he use a medium or some agency? Well, he used an agency, and what might he use? In this case, I think he had a 32-inch chainsaw that he was bringing the trees down with. He used something to, to accomplish it. Uh, a man flies from Houston to Nashville. Do we conclude that he flapped his arms when we say he flew from Houston to Nashville, or do we believe that he used some agency or means? What agency or means might he use? Well, he might use an airplane. And when we say that the Holy Spirit operates in our lives, he directs us, he dwells us, does he do so directly or does he use some means? Well, he uses a means. And Ephesians 6.17 tells us what that means is. It says the sword of the Spirit, which take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, ladies and gentlemen, is the Word of God. It is the means through which the Holy Spirit operates. The Spirit directs our lives by the revealed Word. And there are so many passages that we could show that, that demonstrate that the Spirit is operating through His Word. But let me say this, that when we are obedient to the Spirit's Word, it is then that we are controlled by the Spirit. We're said to be born again when we do what? When we obey the truth given through the Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we're born again when we obey the Word that the Holy Spirit has given, the truth that He has revealed. And so the Holy Spirit works through the truth that He has revealed. Now, I want to ask you a question, and we've got a chart there if you're on page number 18, I believe it is. What does the Holy Spirit do within us that is not accomplished through His Word? And I'm going to go through this chart rather quickly. I would really like for you, though, to look up the verses. Do like I've done. Read the verses so you know what they say for yourself, rather than just taking my word or accepting what I put up here. I'm going to, I'm going to say that there is nothing that the Holy Spirit is doing to direct or control our lives that is not also attributed to the Word of God. Look at the chart that I've prepared here, and it's the same chart that you have on page 18. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, as well as John 5.39, it speaks there of how the... The Spirit witnesses, Romans 8.16, the Spirit witnesses without Spirit. But in John 5.39, it says that the Word of God witnesses or bears testimony. The Spirit is bearing witness through the testimony of His Word. In Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 20, it says God sent His good Spirit to instruct us. You see, the Spirit instructs. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Word of God is given for our instruction. In John chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict men of sin. Well, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, it's by sound doctrine, by the Word of God, that men are convicted. You look at uh, passages like John 3.5, where Jesus explained what it means to be born again, born of water and spirit, John 3.5. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, we're born again by the incorruptible seed, the Word of God. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is working through that word. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it talks about how God has saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews or saves us. James 1.21 says, Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 says, We're sanctified by the Spirit. But in John 17, 17, Jesus says we're sanctified by the truth. Again, in that same passage, we're cleansed by the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26 makes it clear that we're cleansed with the washing of water of the Word, the Word of God. Again, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, we've seen the passage earlier, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, read what it says there, Colossians 3, 16. I don't think we noted this, we meant to note it earlier. It said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us through a medium, through an agency, through the means of His Word. And then in Romans chapter 15 and in verse 13, it says that you should abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. But in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, it speaks of the gospel of Christ as being the power of God under salvation. You see, what we see here in this list is that the things that the Spirit is said to do the same things that the Word is said to do. Now, that in itself wouldn't necessarily prove the point, except that we've seen in other passages, passages like Ephesians 6.17, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The instrument through which the Holy Spirit operates is the Word of God. And here's what happens. When we are obedient to the Spirit's Word, then there's a fellowship that exists between God and man. Now, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament for a moment. I'm going to go back to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. And what we're going to see there is the dedication of Solomon's temple. And it will help us to understand something about this business of indwelling. And, and I would urge you to read this entire chapter. Read chapter 8 and chapter 9 together. They both have to do with the same thing. But I'm beginning here in 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, it's been finished. All these animals have been sacrificed. And Solomon now is going to address the people, and then he's going to address God. And Solomon spoke and said in verse 12, The Lord said He would dwell. There's our word dwell. Notice that. Dwell in the dark cloud. The Lord said He would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. He's talking about this temple. Now, there, there we've got Solomon saying that this is a place for God to dwell in. Are we to understand this to mean that God was literally inside that building that Solomon had built? Was God literally there? I mean, was it like in the case of Dagon? Remember when the Philistines, what was it in, in 1 Samuel, I think it was, when the Philistines had captured the ark of God from the army of Israel and they took it and put it in the temple of Dagon. What happened to Dagon? Well, they go in there the next day and Dagon's fallen over. And so they stand him up again. He's having a hard time standing up. He falls over. And so they nail his feet to the ground. They nail him so he won't fall over again. And this time he gets broken off. He still falls. Well, is that the way it is now with the temple in Jerusalem? Now, we know that with respect to the temple of Dagon, the, the, the people who worship Dagon, they had their God inside a box. They built a box, they put their God in there, and that's where he is, literally. Is that what happened in Jerusalem? Solomon has built a temple, and now God is inside this box that Solomon has built? 
That is not what happened, ladies and gentlemen. And I can demonstrate that from this chapter. I'm looking now at verse 27. If you've got the old American Standard Version, 1901, the language there is really good, though any translation will get the point across. Solomon asked a rhetorical question. In verse 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The old American Standard Version said, Will God in very deed dwell on the earth? Another translation said, Will God in very truth dwell on the earth? The idea is this. What Solomon is saying, Do we mean that God is literally dwelling in this box that I built? He says, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. So God is not like the temple of Dagon. It's not like we've got our God in the box like the Philistines have with theirs. And someone says, well, then that must mean that that there's nothing so special about that temple. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, there was something very special about that temple. And I want you to see that. Solomon said that the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I've built. But look at verse 28. In verse 28 he says, yet, in spite of the fact that we don't literally have God inside the box, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry Listen to the cry and the prayer which His servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which His servant makes toward this place, and that you hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel. And when they pray toward this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon knew that God was not in that box that he had built in Jerusalem. Oh, there was a special presence of God there. But Solomon tells us what he means by dwell. We just read four terms that are used there. He said, your name is there. Meaning that what was done there was done by God's authority and by God's approval. God's eyes were open to what was found at that place. God was observing. And God's ears were open to the prayers that were made there. Look at chapter 9. I've got two more words to pick up. In chapter 9, verse 3, here Solomon speaks to God again. And then God spoke back to Solomon. And here's what God said in reply. In chapter 9, and verse 3, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built. Another translation says, I have hallowed or made holy this house that you have built to put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. God's heart was there and this was a holy place unto the Lord. Now what Solomon and God have done here is they have defined what it means for God to dwell in that place and yet constantly, at least a half a dozen times in chapter 8, It says, here in heaven, your dwelling place. The person of God was in heaven, but the presence of God was made manifest in that temple. Now, that is the truth, ladies and gentlemen. That's what happened there. And I'll tell you what, when you go to the New Testament, the New Testament uses temple language over and over again. All those passages we just saw. You are the temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What what is that doing but using temple language that people who knew the Old Testament were familiar with? And if we were familiar with that language, we wouldn't have so much of a problem. You see, the New Testament uses temple language to help us understand about indwelling. Now, let me bring up my next chart here. What I'm suggesting is that deity dwells in this temple in some sense. Here, 
God's name was upon this place, meaning that His law was being observed. What was being done in this place was done by His authority. The people of God were submitting to Him. And as a result of that, God's eyes were upon this place. His ears were open to the prayers of His people. His heart was with His people. And these people were regarded as a holy people unto the Lord. And so what you have here is the Old Testament law being given as a result of the people submitting to God's law. There was a fellowship that was created between, between earth and heaven. That deity dwelt in this place because these were the people of God and God sustained this special relationship with these people. Now, what I'm going to say is that the same thing is true in the New Testament. We're asking, how does deity dwell in us? I want to make a comparison between the temple and God's people today. And I'm going to draw the very same chart. It's going to have one or two things different. In fact, only one thing different. What we're going to have here is the law of the Spirit. I'm sorry, I went too far. I've got to back up. There we go. It's going to have the law of the Spirit rather than the Old Testament law. This is a far superior system, a system of grace, a system whereby our sins are forgiven. But I want you to notice that the New Testament says that God's name is upon His people, His eyes are upon them, His ears are open to them, God's heart is with them, and they're holy unto the Lord. The very same thing that is said about the temple in the Old Testament when it described how God dwelt in that temple is spoken regarding God's people in the New Testament. Now, let me show you some verses that indeed will demonstrate that truth for us. Look at James chapter 2 and verse 7. James chapter 2 and verse 7 talks about those who oppose the gospel. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? These people are called by the name of Christ. But it's not just that they were called by the name of Christ. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's name is upon us because what we're doing is done by His authority and with His approval. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. 1 Peter 3.12, I'm sorry. 3.12 of 1 Peter. Here Peter says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. There you've got the same thing. And in that context, context of 1 Peter, Peter talks about how that we are a holy people, a holy temple unto the Lord. In fact, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. You also as living stones are built up as a spiritual house. Some of you have a translation that says built up as a spiritual temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Indeed, you are the temple of the Lord and it calls you a holy, a holy priesthood. Look at, look at verse 9 of that same chapter. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. That's saying the very same thing that was said back here in the Old Testament. You're a holy people unto the Lord. You're special people unto God. You look at passages like John chapter 14 and verse 23 and listen there to the words of the Lord Jesus. In 14.23 of John, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The idea of dwelling in him, the idea of loving him. The idea of God's heart being with His people. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, one of my favorite texts of the New Testament. Let your conduct be without covetous, covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. What do you have? For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You have a relationship with God wherein God says, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you.
temple language. God's name is upon His people. His eyes are upon them as He watches over them. His ears are open to their prayers. His heart is with them. He says, Jesus said, My Father will love Him and we will come and make our home with Him. Holy unto the Lord. God's special people. All of the persons of deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwell in us in the same way. And it's unreasonable to argue that the Holy Spirit dwells in us in some different fashion than the Father and the Son. Look at this final chart that I want you to see. And we've touched on each of these verses, so we're not going to read the Scriptures again. But please let me make the point. The word dwell, what did we see? It was used regarding the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. But in Ephesians 3, 17, it says that Christ dwells in us. And we saw 2 Corinthians 6, 16, which says the Father dwells in us. And you know what most of the religious world does? They say, well, now the Father, He's up in heaven, and Jesus, He's up in heaven. And when the Bible says He dwells in us, well, that means we've got a relationship with Him. We're on earth, but we've got a relationship. We're in fellowship with Him in heaven. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they somehow change the rules and they make up a set of rules that the Bible knows nothing about. They've got the Holy Spirit leaving heaven and literally inside our bodies. But that just won't work. Not according to the Bible. And what's happened is that this is something that is so widespread, so believed uh, universally and widespread that people don't even question it. But the Holy Spirit is actually personally living inside our bodies. Ladies and gentlemen, all three persons of the Godhead dwell in Christians. Again, Romans 8, 9, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Romans 8, 10, Christ dwells in us. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, the Father dwells in us, in, used every time. We have the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, but we also have Christ the Son and we have God the Father. With respect to temple, I couldn't find the verse that said you're the temple of Christ, but there may be one somewhere. But the Bible says that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it also says you're the temple of God, 2 Corinthians 6.16. And why do men make a, a distinction on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when the Bible says the same thing about all three persons of the Godhead? Well, I hope what we've learned tonight is that the language used by the Bible indicates that there's a relationship that exists between believers and deity. Ladies and gentlemen, we have fellowship with heaven. We have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit because we are submissive to the law of the Spirit, because we've given our hearts and lives unto Christ through the gospel that the Holy Spirit has revealed. A fellowship exists between men on earth and God in heaven. And it's a relationship wherein God's name is upon us. His eyes are open to our lives. His ears are open to our prayers. His heart is with us and we are holy to the Lord. And just because the Holy Spirit is not personally inside your body, don't you get the idea that God is not with you. He is with you and we should be conscious of the presence of God at all times. When deity is said to dwell in us, it indicates that a relationship is established between heaven and, heaven and earth, wherein man is submissive to God's will in heaven. Heaven's blessings are upon that man as he submits his life to God. And I would ask the question tonight, is heaven's blessing upon you? Have you submitted your life unto God? Maybe you came in this building tonight saying, you know, I'm not a Christian, and I know that I don't have a right relationship with God. But you can leave this building tonight in a right relationship. If you believe the gospel, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you're ready to give your heart and life unto Him, then God will receive you on His terms. If you'll confess the name of Christ, turn from your sins, and be baptized into Christ, 
you can leave this place tonight with God's name upon you. With God's eyes on your life. With His ears open to your prayers. His heart being with you. And you being counted as part of the holy people of God. The Father dwelling in you. The Son dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what you can have. If tonight you're ready to receive that, you come now as we stand and sing. Come now, please. I hope this lesson benefited you in your continuing study of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling. Remember, the question is not if, it is how. The Spirit dwells within His people today. But for that dwelling to take place, we must be submitting to the Word of God. If you have any questions about the Spirit, about His work, about how He indwells His children, about how you can have that indwelling, please give us a call, 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone is giving you this lesson on CD or audio tape. If that's the case, I'd like to encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous outlines and audios of sermons that you're allowed to download and use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.